take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. Take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. Hello, and welcome back to Silence is Platinum. I'm your host, Jessica Keaton, and this is the fourth entry in our series called No Talkies, Silent Forever, where we are covering silent film actors and actresses who died before they were able to appear in a talkie, cementing their fame in the silent era. This episode is going to cover eight silent film performers who lost their lives due to pneumonia. I did have a few more on this list, but I had to cut back due to not finding enough information to constitute a satisfying mini-biography. However, eight is still a lot, so I'm breaking this entry up into two episodes. I will be releasing part two in the next couple of days. So, let's begin, shall we? Mace Greenleaf was born Mace Eustace Greenleaf on December 8th 1872 in Dixfield, Maine. He was the only child born to Charles Ward Greenleaf, who worked as a surveyor, and Mary Stanley Eustace. Like many silent film stars, he began acting on the stage. He would appear in a number of Broadway productions during the late 1890s and early 1900s. He received great reviews for his performances. One critic in 1909 called Mace the best in the play in one of his shows. In 1911, he made a screen debut in the Reliance film short, The Golden Rule. It was with this studio that he made most of his early films. After leaving Reliance, he moved on to the Solax Film Company, where he would play more dramatic roles. One of these roles was as Dr. Earl Headley, a lung specialist, in Falling Leaves. This 12-minute film is available to watch on YouTube. In Falling Leaves, you can see that Mace was an ideal leading man. He was handsome, and he had an acting style that wasn't too over-the-top, even if that was the style of silent film, to compensate for the lack of audible dialogue. The film is melodramatic, to say the least, tugging on the old heartstrings with seven-year-old Magda Foy trying to save her sister who was dying of consumption. Mace's character, Dr. Earl Headley, says that he is the one that can save young Winifred, played by Marion Swain. How does he do this? By giving her an injection in her wrist. Three months later, as the subtitles tell us, Winifred is up and eating and feeling much better. She is so grateful to the young doctor for saving her life. The film ends pretty abruptly here, but you are left assuming that not only has the doctor saved her life, but they've also fallen in love. You know, how all doctor's visits end. Later, in 1912, he appeared in the reformation of Kid Hogan for Lubin, who he would stay with until his death. Critics said he did very credible work. In fact, he and actor James Kirkwood were referred to as the best legitimate leading men in the country. He was also good friends with another silent film leading man, William Desmond. His final film appearance was 1912's The Girl in the Armchair. It would be released about 18 months after his death. On March 25, 1912, Mace Greenleaf passed away from typhoid pneumonia. 
He had been sick with a cold which developed into typhoid before turning into pneumonia. He was just 39 years old. Shortly after his death was announced, the Lubin studio issued a statement saying, I heard the voice of Jesus cry. This worthy soul has come to me to rest through all eternity. To live, ye all must die. He was buried in the Greenwood Cemetery in his hometown of Dixfield, Maine. Sadly, he predeceased both of his parents. While Mace was well known for his screen career, he also appeared in the newspaper headlines for his marriage to socialite Lucy Banning. The Bannings were a prominent family in Southern California that owned Catalina Island. Lucy was the youngest of three children, born to Phineas Banning and his second wife, Mary. He had nine other children from his first wife, Rebecca. Even before meeting Mace Greenleaf, Lucy was infamous for being a flirt and loved to scandalize society by having many suitors. Her motto was said to be, What love can do that dares love attempt. Lucy first married John Bradbury, the son of a successful mining businessman. The couple married in 1893, and all seemed well, until about four to five years in, when the couple attended a party, and Lucy left with another man. Lucy was found in a San Francisco hotel with H. Russell Ward, a wealthy Englishman. Lucy eventually returned to her husband, who warned his wife's lover that he needed to leave town or he would be sorry. Ward eventually did leave, and ended up committing suicide by stepping in front of a moving train. The Bradburys remained married for another five years before she filed for divorce from him. But no worries, Lucy already had her eyes on her next prize, Mace Greenleaf. Lucy first spotted the actor during a performance of Romeo and Juliet in Burbank, California. Mace, of course, played the role of Romeo. Lucy reportedly whispered to her friends, If only I could have a man make love to me like that, I would be so happy. The pair were introduced to each other soon after on a Wednesday, and were married at the end of the week. Like her first marriage, the first few years seemed to be good, but it seems that Lucy's eyes began to wander once again. In 1910, Lucy left Mace for her longtime friend, Charles Hastings. Mace didn't know where she had gone, and he ended up filing a missing persons report, although he did suspect another man was involved. The paper soon got wind of the scandal and came to their own conclusion about Lucy. The Altoona Times commented that her promiscuity was much like a cocaine or opium addict looking for their next fix. She responded by saying that she should not be blamed for her erratic behavior any more than a cocaine fiend. Mace filed for divorce from Lucy in 1911. She did not contest it. However, before the divorce could be finalized, Mace died, which allowed Lucy to finally be with Hastings. The two never married, however. They continued seeing each other until 1918, when Lucy left Hastings for Robert Ross the son of a prominent judge. They would divorce in the late 1920s, and she married her final husband in 1929. Husband number four was a Japanese wrestler named Setsuo Ota, who was 20 years younger than Lucy. 
The couple actually had to get married in Seattle, Washington, due to their interracial marriage being illegal in California at the time. It was during their honeymoon in Europe that Lucy developed pneumonia and passed away shortly after turning 53. Her last words were reportedly, I'll get criticized for this too. It's unfortunate that a man once called a handsome fellow and a courtly gentleman by moving picture world is barely remembered today. The man that moving picture news described as well-proportioned and claimed was looked upon as a type for modern Grecian gods, who was in high demand with directors, should be remembered for his acting talents and not just his connection to a flighty socialite. But who doesn't love a bit of silent film celebrity gossip? Florence Barker was born on November 22, 1891, in Los Angeles. She was the youngest child born to Norman Barker and Sarah Boland. Her sister, Daisy, was born three years earlier. When Florence was around 11 years old, her mother passed away. Norman Barker remarried in 1893 to Lillian Foster, and they would have two daughters of their own. Florence's acting career began as most do, with roles in community theater productions and school plays. She eventually left Los Angeles when she was around 18 years old to work for the Hartford Theater in Hartford, Connecticut, before taking her acting career to New York City. Florence made her film debut in the 1908 short An Awful Moment, which also featured her friend Florence Lawrence, a.k.a. the Biograph Girl. Her screen career only lasted four years, but in that time, she appeared in over 70 films. Most were shorts, between 1908 to 1912. During those four years, she appeared with a number of big names, including all three of the Pickford siblings, Mary, Lottie, and Jack. One of her best-known roles was in a serial for Biograph, which showed the adventures of a character named Priscilla, who Florence portrayed. One of her earliest films was the 1910 D.W. Griffith-directed short, Her Terrible Ordeal. In it, Florence plays Alice, the secretary to Mr. Curtis, played by George Nichols. Mr. Curtis is heading off on a business trip and leaves his son Jack, played by Owen Moore, and Alice in charge. However, unbeknownst to him, his son and his secretary are in love. Unfortunately, due to the quality of the film and the lack of close-ups, it's hard to really see Florence's face, but she does have a lovely smile that comes through and is wearing a pretty form-fitting dress. Owen Moore is easy to spot, however. Those Moore boys had eyebrows blessed upon them from the gods. The source of drama in the film comes after a robber comes out, holds up the business when Alice is in there by herself. The robber locks Alice at the big vault behind the desk and then flees through an open window, empty-handed. Jack returns and hears his beloved trapped inside the vault. There's a problem, though. Only his father knows the combination. At this point, they are both losing their ever-loving minds. Jack has the idea that he is going to run to the train station and try to find his father before he departs on his trip. He is frantic to try and find him, and during this time, we keep cutting back to Alice in the vault, acting like she is melting. 
I mean, this is some serious silent film over-the-top acting. You gotta see it to believe it. And you can. It's on YouTube. What is the conclusion of the story? Somehow, during the whole runaround, Mr. Curtis returns and is able to free his secretary. She has to be carried out of the vault, but Jack revives her just by moving her arms up and down. All is well, and now Mr. Curtis can go on his trip. The end. Another one of Florence's films available on YouTube is 1911's His Daughter, which was also directed by D.W. Griffith. The version available has Danish title cards, but the quality is quite clear. Florence actually looks like a cross between Florence Lawrence and Mabel Normand in the film. The gist of this almost 14-minute film is that Mary, played by Florence, and Willie, played by Edwin August, are in love and want to marry. However, Willie wants to wait until after he completes medical school to tie the knot. Somehow along the way, Mary's alcoholic father gets his hands on the money that has been set aside for Willie's medical school, and he spends it all. The sequence of events is somewhat hard to follow, but the film is worth watching to be able to get a clearer image of Florence Barker on the screen. Florence would also appear in Biograph and Pathé productions in London and Paris, and still managed to find time to appear on the stage. The Buffalo Courier said that Florence was of a most sunny disposition, with a laugh that is infectious, a charming and likable personality, off and on the stage. During an interview in 1912, Florence commented on her life as an actress. Do I like it? I love the work, and would advise any actress to make a try for the pictures. It is all so different, don't you know? It's the carefree life during the summer season, taking pictures in the open with the smell of the forest, the romance of the farm, close to nature, just grand and inspiring. The work is arduous, to be sure. No one ever attained success unless it was accompanied by close and concerted application. I love the stage, and some of my happiest hours were spent in a stuffy little dressing room and I thought it was heaven. And it was. For I've always been enthusiastic about my work. Sadly, during a trip to Los Angeles to visit her mother, Florence Barker developed pneumonia and passed away on February 15, 1913. She was just 21 years old. She was buried at Evergreen Cemetery in Los Angeles. She shares a headstone with her sister, Zula Barker Salada, who died at the age of 37, the same year as Florence. Zula was a performer as well, as a member of the Venetian Ladies Orchestra of Los Angeles. Lillian Barker would pass away in 1924, having outlived all three of her daughters. After her death, the Hartford Current expressed their sadness at the passing of the actress who had once graced their city's stage. Miss Barker was very popular in Hartford, both personally and as an actress. Her good looks, her gentleness of manner, and her dramatic talents winning many friends and admirers. The film industry also spoke out about her death. Actor Owen Moore, during a 1916 interview with a fan magazine, commented, Poor Florence Barker. She recently died. She was a charming soul. 
and had a splendid career paved for her. She had a very good personality, and her performances were excellently finished. Jack Standing was born on February 10, 1886, in London, England. He was the youngest of five sons, born to actor Herbert Standing and his wife, Emily Brown. Sadly, she passed away only a year after her youngest son was born. Around 1904, Herbert Standing would remarry a woman named Jean, and they would have two daughters, Grace and Joan. With his father and three out of four of his brothers being actors, it was no surprise that Jack would follow suit. He began acting on the stage at a young age and received his earliest training in the famous Drury Lane Theatre in London. He was with the company until 1904 when he enlisted in the Royal Navy. He remained with them for 12 years. The Navy didn't take away his passion for acting, though, and Jack would join the Biograph Company in 1909. Two years later, he signed with Lubin. He would make his screen debut in the 1911 short, A Good Turn, which starred Florence Lawrence. During his early film career, Jack usually played characters named Jack, or even Jacques, in one film. The one film credit that really stuck out to me was in 1915's The Sun, in which Jack played a character named Gene Harlow. He was Gene Harlow before Gene Harlow was Gene Harlow. Although... His was spelled G-E-N-E. Jack had quite a few fans. One, a Mrs. J.H. Christman, composed a poem and submitted it to the Motion Picture Story magazine. The poem, published in the January 1914 issue of the magazine, reads, The other night, while gathered in the parlor of a club, speaking on the topics of the day, The conversation took a turn to what is now the rage, the artists of the motion picture play. Each one had named a favorite, from Kerrigan to Joyce, giving everyone their credit due. Costello, Wilbur, Bronco Bill are stars, we must admit, but don't forget that they are just a few. For there is one who leads them all in beauty, grace, and art. He need not to move his lips for his eyes can speak the part. And now I'll tell you who it is whose praises I must sing. The grandest man in picturedom, handsome Jack Standing. Another fan who wrote in using the name Blondina penned another poem for the magazine's July 1914 issue dedicated to her favorite silent film stars. The poem ended with, but for me, I'll take Jack Standing. He's my hero, it sure seems. Pathé claims him now for acting, but I claim him in my dreams. Jack's last picture to be released while he was still alive was 1917's The Curse of Eve. His last film released, however, was With Hoops of Steel, which was filmed in 1917, but not released until the following year. On October 25, 1917, Jack passed away from pneumonia. He was just 31 years old. He was buried at Forest Lawn in Glendale. Jack was married once to Patricia Dorothy Harcourt around 1913. They would have a son, Jack Guy Standing, in 1914. Little Jack would appear in a couple of silent films as a child. 
Another interesting note to his personal life was that on his service registry paperwork for the Royal Navy, it was listed that Jack had two tattoos. He had flags and two pierced hearts on his left forearm. And I wish there were pictures of those. The Standing family continued to stand tall and work through the grief of losing their son and brother. Patriarch Herbert Standing would pass away in 1923. Apparently, his cremains are still in the vault of the Chapel of the Pines crematorium here in L.A. We might just have to do something about that. Jack was a handsome man, perfect for playing both the leading man and the villain on the silent screen. He also had a sense of humor about his unique name. I have never known how much there was in a name until I got one myself. My name is just like the weather. I can't take six steps or talk to three persons without hearing some comment on it. Everyone takes a crack at it, in one form or another. I have an entire scrapbook filled with quips and jests on just my name. One anecdote from Film Fun magazine tells a story about how one day at the studio, actress Gladys Brockwell heard a noise above her dressing room. When she asked another actor what the noise was, he replied, It's Jack Standing. Gladys quit back with, Well, he's not standing very still. Marguerite Marsh was born on April 18, 1888, in Lawrence, Kansas. She was the oldest of six children born to S. Charles Marsh, who worked as a bartender, and his wife, May Warren. Her mother would eventually remarry a man named William Hall after her husband passed. Four of Marguerite's siblings had careers in show business. Her sister Mildred appeared in five silent films. Sister Frances briefly studied law before working in the industry as a film editor in the late 1920s and early 30s and brother Oliver worked as a cinematographer starting in the silence all the way up to his death in 1941. And, of course, Marguerite was sister of May Marsh, who was six years younger. May was definitely the most famous of the Marsh siblings, but if it hadn't been for Marguerite, May may never have gotten involved in the motion picture business. During an interview with the Photoplay Journal in 1919, Marguerite spoke about how both she and her sister May first got their start in the film industry. You know, Sister May followed me to the studio where I was working and broke the record by landing a job and becoming famous almost at once. It was a case of one marsh being swamped by another. And I've just been trailing along. When May first told her older sister that she wanted to be an actress too, Marguerite's response was, Nonsense! Run home and play with your dollies. You couldn't act. You're not big enough, child. Luckily for May, director D.W. Griffith disagreed. Before her acting career, Marguerite worked as a nurse. The idea of being an actress had never even entered her mind. I had never thought of pictures until a friend said, Marguerite, why don't you try the movies? I was greatly insulted. The movies! I should say not. Hadn't I been on the stage and musical plays and various things? Why should I resort to acting before the camera? She made her film debut in the 1911 short The Cattle King's Daughter, which starred cowboy actor Bronco Billy Anderson. 
she appeared in the film under the name Marguerite Loveridge, which was her married name. This prompted fan magazines to christen her Lovey. She acted under this name for the majority of her career, before cashing in on the Marsh name around 1919. One of Marguerite's films that is available to watch on YouTube is the 1912 D.W. Griffith-directed A Beast at Bay. However, the quality is poor, and it can be hard to make out some of the actors' faces on occasion. Not to mention the soundtrack consists of one song playing incessantly, and it will drive you insane. So maybe make this a true silent movie by turning the volume down, if you wish to watch this one. Unlike her sister, Marguerite was known more for her extravagant lifestyle and not for possessing any real acting talent. However, her co-stars liked her and enjoyed working with her. She received decent enough reviews for her performances on stage, but her film reviews primarily focused on her beauty and not her acting. In 1918, the Chicago Tribune reviewed her film Conquered Hearts and commented that, well, she's not so bad, just a wee bit groggy. Another periodical really drove home the lackluster description of Marguerite's acting, saying, You never know she was Mae Marsh's sister. Never in a hundred years. If you want to know just exactly who she does resemble, it's Mabel Normand. Neither, however, has she the Norman vivacity or come-hither eye. To describe her briefly, Mae Marsh's sister has a certain prettiness, a certain sweetness of expression and a considerable languid ability to act. She lacks force and defiantness. Her work might be described as a bit groggy. Miss Marsh will have a much greater appeal when she comes out of her seeming trance and endows her performance with a trifle more pep. As I mentioned earlier, it was Marguerite's personal life that was far more interesting to her fans than her film roles. She enjoyed both astrology and astronomy. She liked to read, and she liked to do embroidery. She didn't knit, however. In 1919, she told a fan magazine, No, I don't knit for the soldiers. I buy candy and cigarettes for the boys and collect all I can from my friends, and I write innumerable letters. But I can't knit, and I can't learn. In 1923, Marguerite's final film, The Lion's Mouse, was released. She may not have been a stellar actress, but that didn't seem to stop the studios from casting her. From her first film in 1911 to her last in 1923, she appeared in over 80 shorts and features. Two 1912 biograph shorts she appeared in starred Mary Pickford and are both available on YouTube. On December 8, 1925, Marguerite passed away from pneumonia. She was 37 years old. A month prior to her death, she suffered a nervous breakdown while making a personal appearance in St. Louis, Missouri. Unfortunately, most of the headlines announcing her death read, May Marsh's sister dies. Her funeral was held in New York City at a site that is now a barber shop, and she was buried at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. As stated earlier, Marguerite was married once to Donald Loveridge. The two married in 1907 and had a daughter, Leslie, in 1908. The couple would eventually divorce around late 1918 and early 1919. 
Marguerite deserves to be remembered for being part of early Hollywood history, and not just for being the sister of another actress. We can only guess what the magazines would have said about her as the years passed, or if she even would have had a film career. The Photoplay Journal summed up Marguerite the best in 1919, saying, The more one knows her, the more one loves her. There you have it, the end of part one of our episodes about silent film actors and actresses who lost their lives from sickness, namely pneumonia. Part two of the episode will cover Mary Thurman, Emily Stevens, Ward Crane, and Casson Ferguson. Make sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes so other people can find the show, and also because I want to know what you think. You can also email me at silenceisplatinumpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or if you just want to say hi. And make sure to check out the Silence is Platinum blog at www.silenceisplatinum.blogspot.com for pictures and other source info on this and past episodes. Also, follow me on Instagram at silenceisplatinum. So, until we meet again, remember the immortal words of Mary Pickford. Adding sound to movies would be like putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo. Shh. Stay silent.